Turn, if you would, to chapter 8 of the book of Romans. We are going to finish chapter 8 today. That will make us halfway through the book. Last week, we talked about uh, election, and we talked about predestination, and we will continue that discussion next week. I asked you to uh, email me questions, and I didn't get any. Uh, It may have something to do with the fact that I gave you the wrong email address. (laughs) Somebody asked if I did that on purpose or not. I don't know. It was predestined to be. If you have any questions about predestination or election or calling, uh, please do send them to me. Or if you have any questions about anything, we'll work them in somewhere. Chapter 8 is the end of the first half of the book of Romans. Romans began with the discussion of justification by faith alone. And chapter 8 is the great chapter dealing with, okay, what does that mean? And two weeks ago, we started with Romans 8.28, and we talked about all things working together for good. Last week, we continued the discussion about Romans 8.28, all things working together for good, and we used the three verses following to talk about The fact that what God means by good is that we are being conformed to the image of his son. If you aren't interested in being conformed to the image of his son, then your definition of good is going to be messed up from the very beginning. We talked about election, predestination, justification, sanctification and glorification and the fact that God who started all this process is going to finish it. That was the point of last week's lesson. So we pick up today in verse 31 and we're going to make it to the end of the chapter. If you've noticed throughout the book, Paul continues to ask questions. He asks questions, you know, what should we do about this? What about this? Is this And in this short passage that we're dealing with today, he asked seven questions. And we're going to work our way through this list of questions today that he asked. Question number one, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Okay. What shall we say to these things? What are these things? Okay. What's that? What is he talking about here? Having talked about being justified by faith alone, having talked about walking in the Spirit, having talked about the fact that God is working everything for good because he is going to complete his work, what should we say about this? You see, he has this idea in his mind that you and I are going, okay, um, this sounds great, But how do I know, how can I be sure that it's actually going to happen? I mean, we talked about this process. We spent most of our time dealing with justification, sanctification, glorification. Last week, we went back in time to predestination, calling, election, that's back before, I am on this process. How do I know that somebody's not going to come along and knock me off of this process? How can I be confident that what God started, God will finish? The question is, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's just stop right there. God's on your team. Who can we put on the other team that's going to cause you problems? We have this mistaken identity, this this mistaken idea sometimes. Anybody know what Zoroasterism is? Most of you probably believe it and don't even know it. Okay. What? It starts with a Z. (laughs) 
There is a good force in the universe. That's God. There is a bad force in the universe. We'll call that Satan. And the good force and the bad force are of equal magnitude and they're fighting it out. Throughout all of history, the good, the bad have been fighting out for the souls of men for control of the universe. And that's what many of us have in our mind because in our everyday life we see good, we see bad, and sometimes it looks like good is winning and sometimes it looks like bad is winning. So they have to be of equal magnitude. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that God is the creator and everything else, including Satan, is part of the created order. If God is on your side, there is not an equal force on the opposite side of the equation. There is God who is the creator on your side and there's everything else, well, on one side or the other. But you think, wait a minute, sometimes it looks like the bad side's winning. Yes, the universe in which we live, Satan has been given the ability to cause havoc in the world in which we live. But remember, go back to the first chapter of the book of Job. Satan has to ask permission from God to work in the life of Job. To which you ask, why would God give him the permission? Why would God allow bad things to happen? What was last week's lesson? God is working all things together for good so that we will be conformed to the image of his Son. God is working to conform us in such a way that we will trust God even when things are not going the way we would want them to go. But remember, if God is on your team, who can be on the other team that is going to cause you trouble? Question number one, what then shall we say to these things? Question number two, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is interesting because you can sit there and imagine all these scenarios where you've seen teams that one team is just so much greater than the other. Uh, I remember talking with an individual one time. He had been my uncle's peewee football coach. This is my dad's baby brother. My dad's baby brother weighed 240 pounds in the sixth grade. <laughs> when they played peewee football, they were undefeated <laughs> and unscored against. Why? He dominated the field, right? God is in control of everything that is happening. Think about it this way. God works all things together for good. That's a promise that God has given us. If there is an opposite and equal force to God, then God cannot, will not, should not make that promise because he's not in control. But he is in control, so he can make that promise. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You come to me, and you need my help. You need something from me. And I give you the most precious thing that I have. Now, there's some discussion about whether one of my sons is... I, we'll go in there, okay? There's some days that I might just toss one in for free. <laughs> no, I wouldn't go there, okay? 
not you. Oh. If God has already given us the most precious thing that he has, what will he not give you that is necessary to accomplish his goal of conforming you to the image of his son. Everything that you need is going to be provided. Everything that you need in order to be conformed to the image. You, you see this pattern, right? I'm, I keep repeating this phrase. Because we read this passage and we say, God's going to give me everything I want. I want a new car. I hate to tell you this. A new car may not help you conform to the image of Christ. I could be wrong. Okay? But it may or may not. We take this passage sometimes, all things work together for good, and we think everything's going to be piece of cake. God is going to give you everything that you need in order to be conformed to the image of his son. This is a fabulous promise. It's a fabulous promise because God has the power and the authority to accomplish what he promises he's going to do. But if what you want is to do your own thing, you're up a creek without a paddle. Yes, Phil? Everything that God gives us may not be positive in our minds. Everything that he gives us is definitely not positive in our minds. I read a survey this week. They ask Americans, the main goal of life is to enjoy life as much as you can. 87% of Americans said yes. 67% of Christians said yes. Okay? If that is true, Romans chapter 8 causes us difficulty. Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter is the greatest promise that we could ever imagine if we accept God's right and authority to conform us to the image of his son. <sighs> okay, I'll stop using that phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us. I like that word graciously. Uh, you ever give somebody something non-graciously, <laughs> reluctantly, with malice of forethought? I don't know. Okay, I'll give it to you. I mean, let's face it. Sometimes I've even given things to my children reluctantly okay if i have to give it to you i will no god graciously gives us everything that we need to be conformed oh i wasn't going to say that again was i there is a flip side of this passage that has always caught my attention god gave his son did y'all catch that? God gave his son to save humanity. God may give us to save, to help others receive the message. It is interesting when you look at it. I mean, we are not dying for the sins of the world. Christ did that. It's done. It's over. But God may use us in such a way that we too could be martyred for the faith in order that God's will might be accomplished. More about that in just a moment.
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring... Why would anybody bring a charge against God's elect? What does that mean? Now, you notice the word elect, right? Yeah, we talked about that last week. We'll talk about it next week. What kind of charge would somebody bring against God's elect? Come on, you can talk. It's a big room, but you can still talk. Hypocrites. Somebody else. Come on. This church is full of sinners. Intolerant. Huh? I'm God. <laughs> huh? Judgmental. Hmm. <laughs> Who is the one bringing the charges against God's elect? Satan. Yes, the world accuses us of many things. And I hate to tell you this, they will probably continue to do it. Just in case you were wondering. But the true source of the problem is Satan. And it works like this. I am simplifying the fool out of this, okay? You as a believer, sin. I know that may surprise you. I hope it doesn't. You shouldn't do it, but you probably will. You as a believer, sin. Tomorrow. This afternoon. Before I finish this lesson. I won't go there. You as a believer sin. And Satan comes along and says, that one's mine. Because they sinned. A charge is being brought against God's elect by Satan because Satan demands ownership of all those who violate the word of God. You sin, and Satan says, you're mine. Now, at that point, what happens? Well, who is he bringing the charge to? There's two possible answers, both of which are probably true. One of them is to God, and one of them is to you. One of them is Satan coming into your mind and saying, you sinned, you're mine, you must not be a believer, you belong to me. All that rubbish you heard about being justified before God, what good did it do you? You're mine. The charge is brought. And the charge is true. You sinned. Those who sin are children of the devil. You're his. But let's look at the other side. He comes to God and says, Kyle sinned. He's mine. And God, I'm simplifying this, right? He runs and looks in his book. And there's the name of Kyle. And there it says, his sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when the charge is brought to God against me, God doesn't see me. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ in me. He sees the righteousness of Christ given to me whereby I become righteous, not because of my own work, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God says, he is justified. Who are you to bring a charge against God's elect? Back to the first question. The charge was to God, 
God looked in the book. You understand, right? I'm trying to make a picture out of this. He looked in the book and said, he's taken care of. He is justified. When Satan brings the charge against me, to me, what am I supposed to do? I am supposed to remember that my name is in the book. Who can bring a charge against me? Because I have been justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's sometimes harder to do. See, God is dealing with the objective fact that I have been made right by God. My experience sometimes clouds my understanding, and that's why I need faith. Therefore, verse 1, chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil comes to me and says, you've sinned, give it up, it's a bunch of baloney, and I look at God, I look at Satan, and I say, on the authority of God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Question, who saves you? There's only one right answer, God. We talked last week about election. We'll talk next week about it some more. Let me give you my nutshell, my down to its core, what election means. It all starts with God. Salvation completely starts with God. It is God who justifies you. Wait a minute, I did some really good things. Well, maybe they were and maybe they weren't, but they weren't good enough to overcome the sin that you have committed in your life. (sighs) Yeah, but I went to the right church. It wasn't that right. I wasn't as bad as my neighbor. That may be true and it might not be true. But your neighbor's in the same boat you are. It is God who justifies. God is the judge who declares us right before God. Who can bring a charge against those whom God has justified. If it was up to me to earn my salvation, do this list and you're in. It could be a long list. It could be a short list. It could be a hard list. It could be an easy list. If it was up to me to complete the list, tomorrow I could fall apart. I could skip item three on the list tomorrow, and I'm toast. If it's me and my list who justifies me before God. But it isn't me, it's God who justifies. Salvation begins and ends with God. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who condemns you? Well, we dealt with this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is Christ doing right now? Right now, what is Christ doing? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and mine. I've used this picture before. I sin tomorrow, this afternoon, before I finish my lesson. I sin, 
And Satan comes and says, ah, he sinned. And God said, he sinned? And Jesus says, I took care of that one. And God says, okay, it's taken care of. And, Satan, and he tells Satan, go away. And over and over and over, you know this is a picture, right? <laughs> a rather silly one at that. But that's what's happening. Christ is interceding on our behalf. Who is going to condemn you? If God is the judge and Christ is your defense attorney, who's on the other side of the equation that's going to cause trouble? And the answer is nobody. Do you see the promise that is inherent in all of this? Justification is not something that you earn from God and then hang on for dear life, hoping that you die before you break something on the list of rules. Salvation is the work of God in our lives. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Huh. I've got lots of kids. You know that, right? Sometimes they cause problems. Not this one. She's never caused problems. <laughs> And sometimes, you know, it's just hard to like them. So, I mean, it just, oh, I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> Events, actions, things occur, and sometimes in earthly relationships, love grows cold. Question, what can come between you as a believer and the love of God? What can come between you and God's love for you? Now, you have to remember, right? We talked about this early on. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for you. You ready for this? My kids have their good days. My kids have their bad days. And on their bad days, okay, it's kind of hard sometimes. Christ died on your worst day. It wasn't that you got your act together that you were pretty cool, that you were living, you know, okay, and Christ said, okay, I'll die for him because they're on the, eh, there's hope here. No. Christ died for you on your worst day because he loved you. And it's uphill. I mean, it's, I mean, it's on the upside from there. What can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And now we give a list. Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? Huh. This list is interesting to me for a variety of reasons. Once again, we have this 21st century American mentality that if God loved us, if he really loved us, there wouldn't be any tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. It just wouldn't happen to us. So if these things do happen to us, 
It must be because God doesn't love us. It must be because we did something to upset him. And we become like Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? Bad things are happening to you. You must have done something really bad because really bad things are happening. Confess and get on with your life. If these things are happening, it must be because God doesn't love us. But that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is God is conforming us to the image of his son and he is going to do whatever it takes to do that. And in the midst of this life, in the midst of this world of sin that we inhabit, there will be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword these things are going to happen maybe more maybe less maybe some of them maybe all of them that's totally in the hands of the providence of god but when these things happen it is not it cannot it ought not make us think that somehow we are separated from the love of Christ. Look at the life of Paul, who wrote this book. They beat him. They ran him out of town. They stoned him. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by snakes. He did this. He did that. And guess what? What did he say back in, what was it, chapter 5? We rejoice in our suffering. Why? You know what I'm going to say, right? Because it helps us to be conformed to the image of his son. Remember, this is written to the church at Rome. The church at Rome is beginning, and we'll talk about this in the months to come, is beginning to see the coming persecution, and it's going to get worse. They are going to have tribulation, distress. They are going to have persecution, famine, nakedness. I think it's interesting that nakedness is on this list. Why do you think that is? Because, see, nakedness means you've, first off, lost all your stuff. Okay? Secondly, it means you're exposed to the world, the shame of the world. I mean, it's not, it's hard to be dignified. (laughs) I mean, let's face it. There's not many of us in here who are supermodel, you know. We don't want to see any of us naked. Let's just face it, right? It would be a shameful thing. I told you that my wife and I watched War and Remembrance, which is the sequel to The Winds of War, and it discusses at length I mean, it demonstrates at length the Holocaust. And I think I told you at the time that uh, when they made the TV miniseries, they had to get permission from the networks to show nudity in prime time. It's not erotic nudity. (laughs) It's the nudity of the masses of humanity who are having their dignity stripped from them before they're run into a gas chamber. It is not a pretty picture question if you lost your dignity if you were exposed to the shame of the world if the world saw you in all your nakedness would that separate you from the love of Christ and the answer to the passage is 
no. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Tomorrow, something bad might happen to you. If not tomorrow, the next day. If not then, the days to come. You could probably sit here and in your mind think of a list of the bad things that could happen. Don't do it. It'll just depress you. But you probably could. Many of you have difficulties in your life. You know what's on the horizon. Or it could be something that just appears that you had not anticipated. And you think, gosh, this is horrible. And Christ says, and I love you. I love you. In the midst of the tribulation, the persecution, the distress, the famine, the nakedness, and the sword. I pray and I hope that we do not experience the persecution and the tribulation and the sword that the Church of Rome is about to experience in this historical time period. There are believers in the world today who are, who do, experience exactly the same thing. Question, does it separate them from the love of God? And the answer is no. How do we know that? Because God said it. How do I know that it doesn't prove that I'm wrong, that I've lost my faith, that I've lost my salvation? Because it is not you who justified yourself. It is not your friends. It is not your church. It is God who justified you. What, who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one, no how, no way. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is taken from Psalms, and basically it's an acknowledgement. Things are going to be bad in this world in which we live. But the worse they get, the more we can cling to the fact that we are justified by God and we are loved by Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Go home and memorize that one. It is interesting to me. I actually sp spent a lot of time trying to figure out this phrase, more than conquerors. Okay? You get into a fight. A big fight. And there's somebody who wins. They're the conqueror. There's somebody who loses. They're the loser. That's the way our modern mentality works, right? There are those who win, and there are those who lose. There are the conquerors, and there are the vanquished. But we're not either one of those. We are more than conquerors. What does that mean? It means that the fight has already been won. That's weird. Remember last year's series where we worked our way through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua? And Joshua is told... Be strong and courageous. I am sending you into this land, and I have won the battle. But you have to be strong and courageous. That's kind of weird if you think about it. I'm a general. I'm going to war, and I know that I've already won. I am more than a conqueror. In the eyes of the world, there are the people with the sword. There are the Christians who are slaughtered. The people with the sword won. They're the conquerors. The Christians are the vanquished. And Christ is saying, no, you died. 
That's a good thing. You lived. That's a good thing, too. But I died. That's a good thing. You get the picture, right? What can you do to somebody whose death is better than their life? They are, not they, we are more than conquerors. But wait a minute. What did we just talk about? Tribulation, distress, persecution, fame, and nakedness, danger, and sword. Aren't these all bad things? Yes, they're all bad things. And God uses all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose that we may be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's us. That's us. And we are more than conquerors. For I am sure, I would like to say that I am like Paul, and I can say I am sure. Paul is sure. Why? Because he has faith. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. While you're memorizing verse uh, 37, just keep memorizing. God elects. God predestined. God calls. God justifies, God sanctifies, and God glorifies. Who, what, in all of the created order is going to knock us out of this path if it is God who put us on there to begin with? The church, the church at Rome is beginning to have issues (laughs) with the community, a.k.a. the Roman Empire. We, as believers, in the society in which we now exist, are beginning to see that. There is no sword at this point. There's just the derision of society. There is financial implications. All of this is starting. Question. If God put us on this path and the end result is glorification, if he who began is going to complete, who can knock us off of the path? I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life. That's interesting. Contrast. Does death knock you off the path? No. In fact, it kind of, you know, that glorification one, the last one, that kind of makes that real, right? Death does not knock you off the path. How about life? Sometimes I worry more about life than the death part. Maybe tomorrow something will happen. Maybe I'll know. It doesn't matter. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers. Let's look at any political organization, entity that exists or that ever has existed. If God is on your side of the equation, what can be on the other side of the equation that can knock you out of this path? Be they angelic forces, spiritual forces, and we know that there are bad, angelic, demonic forces. 
You know, we are not charismatics. And so sometimes we have this idea that we don't want to talk about demons and that kind of stuff too much because people might think we're going to be speaking in tongues next week. Demonic forces are real. But they can't knock us off the path that God has put us on. The powers of this world cannot knock us off the path that God has put us on. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. I don't know about you. I'm sure you're a lot better than I am. But I sometimes worry about the future, that I might do something that really messes up. You know, I get mad sometimes, and I just, you know, lash out, and my life is over. Nobody likes me anymore, and I'm just... There's something going to happen in the future that's going to make people not like me. Question. What can I do in the future that will make God not like me? Christ loved me when I was at war with him. What sin can I commit that will separate me from the love of God, the love of Christ? Neither the present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, Let's just get the whole geographic, you know, the highest point in the world, the lowest point in the world. Let's just make sure that everything is covered. Isn't there some place in the universe where I can go where God will stop loving me? And the answer is no. Nor anything else in all creation now, there's a quick test right here, okay? Here it is. There's God, and there's everything else. There's the Creator, and there's all of creation. That's all there is. There's no third category. There's God, the Creator, and there's the creation, that's everything else. There is no part of this that God is not in control of. There is nothing in the created order that will, can, separate us from the love of God. There's nothing else. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. What are we supposed to do with this? We are supposed to have faith. Tomorrow. This afternoon. Maybe before I finish my lesson. Satan's going to come along and say, you know, you're really not that good. And if the person sitting next to you really knew what you were thinking about right now, they wouldn't ask you back to this church. Because you're a sinner and God doesn't really like you. And on the authority of the word of God, we can look at Satan and say, go to hell. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> That's a theological term. On the authority of the Word of God, we can accept, we can believe, we can acknowledge, we can be sure that there is nothing, past, present, or future, there is no one, high, mighty, low, medium, pick anyone, that can separate us from the love of God. Therefore, there really is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
That's the end of the story. You may remember that a lot of Paul's writings are divided into two. You can go look at the book of Ephesians, for example. Chapters 1, 2, 3, it's the theology. Chapter 4, 5, 6, it's the what do I do about it. Romans is the same way. We've reached the end of the beginning of Romans. We've gotten the theology out of the way, and now we've got to deal with what does it mean in our everyday life. And that picks up in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, some of you are pretty good at math. And you figured we just went from chapter 8 to chapter 12. We missed something. Because Paul is going to have a discussion before he gets to the practical side of it. And that discussion is, okay, we are justified by faith alone. The, remember all those discussions? The Jews first and also the Greek. What about the Jews? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are going to deal with what about the Jewish community? And that's where we're going to pick up next week, and we're going to talk about predestination again. Sorry, it was predestined to be. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us, no matter what. I pray, Lord, that today you would give me a vision of what that means, that I may walk in your love and acknowledge the fact that I am not condemned because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.